0: It's been one of those days where, like, I don't know how to describe it to you, but it's this sense of feeling lost. It's this sense of feeling disconnected, just slightly out of sync, just slightly out of step with what you thought was going to be the day, how it was going to be the day, what you plan to do, just always being just a little bit off. And I I don't like it. I I do not like it like at all. And it's to the point now where I am actually really disorganized right this second because I'm I'm bouncing from thing to thing in, in a somewhat disjointed way. So while uh I do the while the intro is playing, I'm gonna go run in the other room and grab my uh large uh thing of water because I left it out here. I'm just All over the place, and I apologize. Today, uh, I've got a good, I've got good questions for you. Um, I'm in, although a a lost place, an interesting mental space that I think will help uh, answer some questions. And hopefully, people here in chat will have some some good questions too. I'm looking forward to it. All right, let's uh, let's go do that really great intro, and I will go get my water uh, back in seconds. Remember what I've taught you. realize that is the wrong graphic, so let's, let's just swap that real quick while I sit here, and then we'll hit that intro. I can't believe it's the wrong graphic. How dare I? I thought I fixed it. It's always one of the last things. Let me just put the new one up. Boom! Big, giant, crazy size, that is. Let's make that smaller for, like, the viewing peoples. Okay. Well... Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, thinkers, planners, email senders, criers, journalists, thinkers, anybody who's ever had to clean out headphones, anybody who's ever been just shocked at like you've looked under a thing and you've seen all the dust, anybody who's been stuck in the last week on a writing project, anyone who's worried about what comes next, people who... Uh, enjoy a really nice role and a really good sandwich. Anyone who's fought through a difficult thing and surprised themselves by how well they got through it. And most importantly, the comrades. Hi, I'm John. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure and joy to help anybody, everybody write better. And this is the writer's chat for August the 29th. If you have no idea what this is, um, this is a Q&A where I'm going to answer the 13 questions I've collected from all different kinds of people all across social media all week, as well as the uh, questions that anybody here in chat might have. I'm looking at this and I don't, it just tells me there's a red blinking light. I can't tell you how many people are here, but if there are people here, hello, hi, it's nice to have you. Um, Yeah. It's really, really nice to have you. I, I'm pressing the button like it's going to do something, and it's not doing anything. What I what I want to do is I want to come back to the thing I talked about in the in the pre-opening, in the uh, I don't prologue. I I don't have a name for that. When the timer is going and I start talking, I don't know what to call that. I think from time to time, every writer, every creative, every everybody who wants to make a thing, do a thing, or say a thing. I think from time to time, for any number of factors, you end up a little bit lost. And it really helps to stop and look again at where you were and where you are and where you want to go. Not so that you can beat yourself up or feel hopeless about it, like, oh man, I'm so far away, I'll never get where I want to be. Like that's that's too easy and too tempting in this world to just sit there and be negative. And social media with all its curated stuff can really uh, keep us there for a while. I mean, when you feel stuck, I, I've i I've always thought that it's always best to stop and reorient yourself. Just like when you're playing a video game and you, you look at the map and you have no idea where you, where you are. Sometimes you have to stop and kind of find a landmark and figure out the direction you're going in and then figure out a course to get there. I think we all have to do that from time to time because... Where we want to go is very seldom directly simple. And where we want to go and what we want to do is very subject to things. You know, I can start talking and then you can have this genius moment and then you'll go off and do something else. Or I'll say a thing and you'll feel a certain way and it just doesn't... um, Turn out the way we expect, although it all, it's almost always good to try getting things to turn out the way we want, if that makes sense. it's It's difficult. It's very seldom easy. It's very seldom straightforward. But that effort, that belief in yourself, that sense of being good should be so innate, I think, in everyone. In the same way that we should all have that sense that we don't want other people to hurt. I think that sense of feeling like you have a purpose and that sense of feeling that you are good enough to feel like you have a purpose, even if that purpose seems very distant or in the future or hard to do and you're not quite sure how you're going to get there from where you're at, I think everyone deserves that certainty. And I think everyone deserves a real chance to shape their life the way they want And I think everyone has an inalienable fundamental right towards being as creative as they want to express themselves however they want. And whether that's making books or taking, I don't know, photos of their feet or, or making birdhouses or, or becoming a sculptor or I I don't know what. I think everybody deserves an outlet. Everybody should have an outlet. And I think if more people embraced it without judgment or concern that as to how other people would think about their outlets, here's my outlet, there's your outlet, and neither of us judged us based on our outlets, I think the world would be a better place. If you feel lost, I think it's totally okay to take time and get yourself sorted. I understand that it can often feel like you're, you know, wasting time or, or you're using time that needs to be committed somewhere else. But um, no, no it's It's more important than nearly anything else that you figure out what you want to do and where you want to go and how you want to get there, just so that you can just so that you can get there so that it doesn't seem like it's this carrot on a stick or goalposts that are forever moving. you should be able to achieve the things you want. You might have to scale them back. You might have to modify them. You might have to poke them with a stick every now and then, but you deserve things and you deserve good things just because you've done bad things or less than perfect things doesn't disqualify you from being good. That's what's on my mind today. I understand I I basically just threw a free podcast episode in the intro here, but that's okay Uh, because it's my stream and I can do what the fuck I want. All right, here we go. Here we go. First question, you've talked about the traffic and weather report opening. Is there any way to make it interesting? If you don't know what a traffic and weather report opening, it's the first page or so, sometimes longer, but it's the first big block of text the reader is introduced to where you are setting up very passive things like, Here's the ground, and here's the kingdom, and here's the trees, and here's the weather, and here's what kind of day it is, and here's the history, and here's some lore, and here's some this, and here's some that. And while it might involve people, because you're going to mention some historical thing from centuries past, it's it's really dull, and it's really slow, and it always reminds me of... Uh, like bad AM radio traffic and weather, like traffic and weather on the eights or something. Like we're just going to get a 30 second clip of someone saying, oh, there's traffic in this bridge and this tunnel's packed and oh my God, it's going to rain. And then we go, we go on with our day and it's it's nice to have that information, but it feels so insignificant and it feels so temporary and it feels like that's not really the thing you want to be telling us. It feels like it's just this thing you feel you have to. Traffic and weather openings are dull as hell. So is there a way to make it interesting? Yes. Because you can take that same information from your traffic and your weather report and rather than slather it all together in like five paragraphs up front and then get it out of the way, you can take some of those details and weave it in with what you've got that you want us to pay attention to. So if your character is currently having some kind of profound guilt because in the last chapter they just... You know, went to Reno and shot a man just to watch him die or something. Then that guilt is with them while the snow is lightly falling on them and their horse. Or the woman who is looking to um, climb the corporate ladder at work at her next available opportunity is looking at the the rain pooling on the street below and wondering what it would be like to be everybody else who doesn't realize that tomorrow she's going to climb the corporate ladder. Take those elements that are just otherwise going to be flat, dull, slow as shit description and turn them into something that facilitates or speaks to or develops some other point you're talking about. Make it matter. You don't have to let like, go wind some kind of crazy metaphor or simile together but you do have a responsibility to say what you want and get across the point you want. And doing it more often than not in an engaging way is going to be better than just sort of spewing details out and then, oh, by the way, you know, now that we're done the boring part, let's go be exciting. You can, you can blend it together better. It does take practice. You can totally do it. Great first question. On we go. Question number two. What's the anthology gap? The anthology gap is uh, this really garbage idea that seems to be floating around social media, and it, it bubbles up now and again whenever there's like a great deal of anthologies being produced or published. The anthology gap is the thinking of some writers, published or not, that if you're in an anthology, it's not really real I'm making air quotes it's not really real publishing that if you're in an anthology like you're kind of published so you're kind of legit in the sense that your work ends up somewhere but it's not the same as like writing your own book and going out on your own that anthology gap is a gap where some people are only ever going to be good enough to be a minor feature in a small anthology that not everybody's going to have or own or read or even know about. And the anthology gap is there to sort of like gatekeep the idea of real, again, I'm making air quotes, real publishing, that you have to be this tall to ride the ride or this smart or you need to have written this or attended that or been this person or gone here or something. There's no basis for it. Um, I used to think that it was just jealousy, that people would argue that anthology writing is for less good writers because they themselves weren't asked to be part of an anthology. But I, I think more and more as I get older, it's less about jealousy And more about insecurity, This sense that some writers feel the need to dictate the terms by which writing can occur or not occur in order to make themselves feel better about their own creative path. Like, you're not a real writer if you're not rejected 50 times, because they were rejected 50 times. That kind of thing. I think that gatekeeping comes far more out of a place of insecurity than it does something accurate and informative. And I think the anthology gap is there to be yet another kind of gatekeeping to a bunch of writers who are already making a mistake, thinking that legitimacy comes from publication as opposed to production. But further gatekeeping it, I think, just gives us more reasons to be divided creatively. It's it's not good. Don't do it. There There isn't really an anthology gap. Some people write and they only get in anthologies because... That's where they're happiest doing, and they didn't have any opportunity otherwise. Other people don't get into anthologies because they're writing a book. Other people think they're too good for anthologies, et cetera, et cetera. Just everybody's different. Just let them create. On we go. Question number three. Is there an emphasis on lore over story in pop culture right now? Yes. Yes. Here's why. What a great question this is. Here's why people are leaning more heavily on lore than current active ongoing story. Because lore suggests that there's a back catalog, that there's other stuff, that it's been well-defined and documented, and here's this history. And if I can lean into that history... Then I can tell you, the person who's coming and engaging with the material, to go pick up all these other things, to go read this other stuff and see how creative I've been. See how much there is. See how detailed I got. See how good, I'm making air quotes, good this work is. Lore acts as justification, that way. Lore, if there's a lot of it, must justify quality. It has no actual bearing on quality. But for a lot of people, there's a feeling, a sense that if I have a lot of lore, if I have all this stuff, then I must be a good writer because I just have a a great volume of things. And lore also gives us a chance to misunderstand the way story can be connected to things. So if there's a lot of lore, you know, a big complicated history with lots of moving parts, loads of people, loads of situations and stuff, then when I tell this story, all of a sudden these small things that are just small things in my present story take on extra significance, again, because I'd been so creative in the past. Also, lore is safe, That's an element I don't see discussed a lot when it comes to talking about lore and story. Lore is safe because it's in the past and nobody can argue it with you. You can just make it and say it happened. Last week I did this. The week before that I did this. 25 years ago my family came from blah, 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 blah. Like it just is. It becomes incontrovertible. And it gives you a sense of surety, whereas story in the present is active, ongoing, and changing. And that malleability, that evolution, that potential for it to just go the fuck off the rails any second can really be scary for a lot of people because they don't really let themselves be imaginative. They don't let themselves be creative. They don't think they'll be able to solve a problem of their own creation if they, you know, make one. If they, oops, suddenly, you know, set up a different thing. Story's hard and tricky because we have to juggle the reader's engagement and estimation of how well it's going and we have to make sure that they're picturing things whereas lore I I don't have to worry about the reader because it's in the past I'm telling you history I'm telling you things you don't necessarily have to have an emotional reaction to you can have an intellectual reaction you can just sit there and uh huh there were the Greeks then the Romans then the this is then the that's and then this happened and then that happened and then lots of dudes became kings etc etc lore is easy stories hard and I think pop culture in its constant iterations of reboot and collapse and write things off for tax reasons and avoid caring and avoid helping people develop and grow lore is tempting because lore means I don't have to engage with what's going on around me I can stick my head in the sand and I can I can stay out of the way I think that's why lore gets leaned on more than story if, if you'd like a more pointed human answer, it's because people are chicken shit and writing lore is safe and it's less of an emotional risk than pursuing story. Good question. Now, we're going to take a big risk here because I don't know if there's anybody actually here. I have no indication whatsoever if it's just me and the room mod bot or even if it's just me. I can't tell so I'm going to stuff some water in my face and ask you if there's anybody here who has any questions and if no one's here and it's just me talking well then we'll all just sort of nod quietly and then move on to our next thing so any questions from anybody that's here. Five Mississippi, six Mississippi, seven Mississippi. All right, I'm going to keep moving then. Question number four What is the anti Reed or the anti Reed position? Somebody brought this up to me late last week, and I wanted to make a podcast episode about it, but. I thought it would also make a better chat question. So the anti-read position is this. Let's suppose you're writing, I don't know, science fiction, or you're writing fantasy, or you're writing a thing, whatever it is, poetry even. You're writing X. While you're writing X, however long that is, however detailed it is, whatever, you don't want to read things of that genre, or style. That's the anti-read position. If I'm writing X, I do not read things in and around or near X because I don't want other people's stuff influencing me in and around X. So if you're writing romance, you don't read romance. If you're writing poetry, you don't read poetry. If you're writing about, I don't know, a memoir, you don't go read other memoirs. I don't like this position. I think it's bad. Not bad in like a, like, like you're ruining something sense, but I think you're holding yourself back. I think you are limiting exposure to things that might facilitate you or make things easier or exciting or encourage you while telling yourself that you're protecting yourself and being somehow more pure or true to what you think and see. Withholding exposure does not help you. It doesn't make your idea more precious. It doesn't make your idea more authentic. It doesn't it doesn't do anything good like that. Like at all at all. It just it just doesn't. And it's not going to. You want to be able to read in and out of the genre in which you are creating, not because you are looking to subconsciously influence yourself on like a copy steal plagiarized level. Ah, they had giant spiders. I will have a giant spider. It's not about that. It's about seeing how your genre bends and moves according to other people so that you can make it bend and move according to you. You want to go, you're writing a detective story. You want to read other detective stories because a, they're good and B you know, maybe it'll tell you something that'll help you correct an error you're making. You think you can't get too deeply personal in a detective story because you're supposed to have this sort of like hard, noble edge. Well, if you read more modern detective stories from the last know, 12 years or so, you'll see detectives who are far more emotional and emotionally intelligent in saying and doing what they're doing. That's, that's evolution. That's growth. And if you were to lock in and not read within the genre in which you create, you are missing growth. You are missing elements that would fundamentally improve your story. Anti read has always struck me as limitation, it has always struck me as something that we have to restrict. We find somehow some kind of great purity or quality some kind of weird like protestant work ethic kind of nonsense like it's only good if i'm you know hurting myself in order to do it and and that's just that's just no way to create that's that's not a healthy strategy no no good comes from that so no i'm not a fan of the anti reed position question number 5 why does social media keep making a big deal about things that don't have to be big deals in writing and publishing? So the other night I was sitting on, uh, sitting on the couch and I was skimming the discord. Now, if you're a member of the discord community, um, hi, it's nice to see you. If you want to be a member of the discord community, jump over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better. And for two bucks a month, you can get in and it's, a collection of clients and and sponsor, uh, supporters and patrons and a few friends and a few writer friends and publishing people, all of whom are working together to build this little community of very engaged, very active, very, you know, can-do attitude people as opposed to just sort of sitting and taking up space. And in the course of one of these discussions, somebody mentioned that over on TikTok, ooh, that's always a good sign for how conversations start, uh, on TikTok, people were making a big deal about writer signatures. Now, let's just make a disclaimer up front: I don't know the specifics of what they're talking about. I do not know if they're talking about like, as an author, you need to have a special kind of signature, or you need to have like a good signature, so you need to like practice it, or it needs to be different than your regular human not writer signature. I have no clue. It doesn't really matter because there's no part of signatures that is really a big deal in publishing other than it helps to have some kind of signature on a contract if there is a contract so beyond that no one gives a shit like it's it's there are so many things like signatures like the right kind of chair or for a while everybody was talking about pens not even fountain pens just like pens. And of course, there's like a pile of different answers or software or monitors or whether or not you needed special blue lens glasses or whether you needed earbuds in the right kind of playlist while you write. Loads of different things suddenly bubble up and geyser into this tremendous source of discourse. And there's no goddamn reason for it it's propagated and made worse by people who want to make this the center pl- you know like the centerpiece of a greater argument they want to make it all about them they have a class to sell they have a grift to grift they have you know bullshit to bullshit with so they're going to tell you that they have a special thing and you can have it too if you just fork over a lot of money or something it, it doesn't matter. These things don't matter. And the reason why social media keeps making it a big deal is because social media is not interested in you being creative. Social media is interested in you using social media, all the platforms, whether it's X slash Twitter or Blue Sky or Mastodon or Counter Social or or uh, threads or who knows what the fuck else. All those platforms are interested in is keeping you on that platform, keeping you scrolling, keeping you clicking, keeping you reading, keeping you reacting, keeping you there. They don't want you going away. They're not built for that. They, I don't know, maybe they're babies and have no object permanence, but they don't want you leaving. And they certainly don't want you doing things that would generate you leaving for long stretches of time, like writing or publishing a book. They like it when you engage with them. So they love that marketing shit that everybody tries to do and fails at. But they hate the part where it's like, I'm going to go right now. I'm closing this tab. They, They hate that. So in order to keep you there, they will take things that are vaguely in the neighborhood, not even adjacent, but vaguely in the space of writing, like your writer signature, and turn it into discourse. Because if they can get you thinking, chatting, talking arguing, whatevering about a signature, that's time you're not writing. That's time you're not revising. That's time you're not outlining. That's time you are not away from social media. So social media has a vested interest in making sure you don't directly go do the things you're going to do. People, humans, they're the ones from whom you will get your accountability. They're the ones from whom you'll get your help, your assistance. And maybe social media will be a vehicle for that because someone will, you know, dm you and go hey is everything okay or you know did you do your writing this week can we bounce some ideas off each other like people will help people through the vehicle of social media but once you get away from a one-on-one interaction and all of a sudden it's just i'm in the hashtag whatever the fuck on this platform the wheels come off that bus right quick because social media doesn't want you writing they want you using social media and honestly, a lot of the people on social media who want to make a big deal about the dumb shit, they don't have anything else to talk about. Like the dumb shit's all they got. Because if they had anything else to talk about, you can guarantee they'd be talking about it. They'd be talking about the book they're writing. They'd be talking about how hard it is to get published. They'd be talking about what it's like to try and be an influencer. They'd be talking about literally anything else that would matter, but because they can't possibly fathom being that kind of vulnerable and/or negative to break the perfectly curated view they have, they're not going to. So all of a sudden social media becomes all about signatures, pens, software, the tilt of the angle on your headrest, um, the right kind of chunky sweater, etc, um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. It has no point. You don't have to get sucked in. It's not that big a deal. But, oh, man, you'd be surprised the number of people who get sucked into these things without even really trying because social media can be a sort of a greased slide that way. Be careful. On we go. Question six. Why does traditional publishing take as long as it does? I was having a conversation with a writer last week, and this came up we were laying out a schedule for like okay so if you're going to write the book now it's going to go to editing here it's going to get you know go to a publisher over there and it it takes a while it takes months to years to do this stuff and the the question was very simply asked why does it take so long cuz digitally you can get this done in you know very very little time honestly how much time does it take to edit a thing to paint a cover for a book, to piece it all together digitally? How much time does that really take? And when you measure it out and stack it all together and don't just say it it was, you know, 800 Saturdays. You just say, you know, it was 1,600 hours, two hours for 800 days. When you stack it all together, it's never as long as you think. Traditional publishing in particular is built on a schedule of hurry up, and then really, really wait. And the reasons why we wait are pretty dumb. They're based on money. They're based on trying to guess when other people will do things. Release schedules in particular are determined based on, well, when are other people putting books out? We either want to be just ahead of them or in tandem with them. And there's no real sense to it. Like, If you were to ask me, hey, John, why are book releases really big in February? There's no reason. It's just that that's how it's always been done. People don't question it enough. And so February becomes a major traditional publishing space. Just because. And they come up with all different kinds of justifications. When you ask about, well, why does it take so long for a traditional editor to edit a book? Reasons like, it's because it's not their only book they're editing at the same time or because they're doing different variable things to different varying degrees of skill and quality. They're not doing it, you know, um, out of spite. Oh, your book sucks, so it's going to take longer. That might be true. Your book sucks because it'll take longer. But it's not because, oh, you're a bad person. It's just there's a lot of mistakes. Traditional publishing speeds you up wanting you to get done soon, wanting you to get to querying, wanting you to get accepted, and then they'll tell you that it'll be two years or more until your book is on a shelf. We don't spend enough time talking about that part. The reason why that takes so long is because we print books cheaply overseas, then they have to get onto a big-ass boat and hopefully not get stuck in like a canal or a dock or something, and then sail them across the ocean because we still insist on killing the planet just so that we can have a nostalgic feel for a heavy paper object in our hand. Things take time because doing them fast is contrary to the traditional publishing model because if things went faster, we would need more books, which means we couldn't gatekeep so much, which means we couldn't reject so much, which means some people who love to get rejection happy would have to sort of reduce their gatekeeping, which means they wouldn't be special so much anymore, which means there'd be more books on the shelf, would mean people wouldn't be perpetuating the divide between traditional and self-publishing, which means everybody readership-wise would be winning and traditional traditional publishing doesn't want strong readership they want strong customers so how do how does traditional publishing maintain its stranglehold maintain the the system and the gears of power it, it has created it slows everything down everything self publishing hybrid versions of it all that stuff is influenced and sort of looked at in reference to traditional publishing. There's no reason to do it that way. It's I've always thought about it in terms of like when the car was in its early infancy and it was very popular, people were still really advocating for horses and not cities and they made things really difficult or to use a different example, there were trolleys and all of a sudden the car came along and pushed the trolley out. And it's because things in power want to stay in power and maintain that power. And in order to do that, they are willing to affect things on big fundamental scales for as much as possible. Traditional publishing wants to go slower because they want to be in charge. They don't like that things have sped up without them. They don't want to adapt. So slows everything down. But honestly, it takes 20 to 45 hours to publish to edit a book, maybe 100 hours at the most. It takes maybe that long to um, go through it and develop a marketing campaign. It takes maybe 10 hours to print because printing is done in mass and bulk, maybe 15 hours. So you're not really looking at a whole lot of time and it could be made faster if you paid people better or supported them or encouraged them or produce different quality work to different things to different reasons you could speed this up in a lot of different ways but then traditional publishing would find all new things to complain about so that's why it takes as long as it does because they want to stay in power good question are there hang on there's a question does it feel fast from inside publishing yes when you are in a publisher, when you are working for them, there is a constant pressure. Hi, it's nice to see you. Um, there is a constant pressure to always like, oh my God, we have this do and we have that do and this is happening and then this is happening and we better throw more money into it and oh my God, I can't believe we're spending more money and this better make our money back, et cetera, et cetera. From the inside, it's very fast. It's too fast. Oh my God, it's right around the corner from, but we don't spend enough time Think When we're inside, we don't spend enough time thinking about the outside view because the, the, the two factors the inside view uses to maintain its authority are controlling the pace, the speed, and the quantity of communication. I know too many writers who have complained too much that their agent and or publisher have disappeared, fallen off the face of the fucking earth because they won't easily regularly communicate even if nothing's happening. It would take no time at all. How long does it actually possibly take you to write like a two-paragraph email? I don't know. Five minutes? It doesn't even have to be big and long and detailed. Hi, author. Good, you know. Hope you're doing well. Here's an update as to what's been happening. Here are three things that are happening now and two things that are going to happen later. Please let me know if you have any questions. Uh, all the best. Your name here. How long did that take me to speak? A couple seconds? I figure maybe it'll take me a minute, maybe two minutes to totally write that out. So why aren't more people doing that? I don't know. But yes, from inside it feels fast because there's always a pressure to recoup losses, to, to see things as failing and falling apart or negative or at the threat of being negative when we always have to work to... Not to do the noble thing of we're producing art. They could give a shit. But to look at it in terms of like, oh my God, we, we're going we, to spend all this money. We better make our money back. It's a terribly disgusting way of viewing things. Like just, just help people produce the thing they want to make. Facilitate the production. Facilitate the expression. And I think things would be like super loads different. But that's just me. Other questions? The one thing, one thing I'm most bothered about with all the Twitter X kerfluffle, uh, I've lo- with them shutting down the API. I've lost the ability to press a button and have a tweet post to allow people to like come and hang out. It, uh, it bugs me because, um, I never know who I'm talking to. All right. Are other creative industries the same with hurry up and wait? Not all of them. Some are, sometimes. Some parts of a process are hurry up and wait. Uh, pitch meetings, executive things, planning meetings, fundraising, that stuff can be very hurry up and wait. But there are other times like filming, shooting, and editing that are very much like go, go, go. It's it's a strange push-pull. It's a strange kind of um, dichotomy for things. Like it's, it's almost like two very different things that happen to be Concurrent or related to one another, but the act of production—whether we are making or filming or editing or cleaning or thing or thating or doing whatevering—that always feels like it's moving at one pace, at one rate, completely independent from the steps down the process that almost always feel slower. But then we we get through them and we're on the next productive stuff. Whenever we have stuff to do, it always feels fast. And then whenever we have to hand that over to someone else, it always feels slow. I'm interested in that. I don't have better terminology for it. I don't even know if it's really been something that's been studied or looked at. But I would be incredibly curious to find out if somebody has ever poked a stick at the idea of hurry up and wait when it comes to creativity. What an interesting question. Hmm. Good stuff. Anything else? Else we will just keep moving on. You're very welcome. Here we go. Question seven. A pricing question. How do I know if I'm pricing myself out at $599? They're talking about ebook pricing. I know the question is unclear, but let's make it clearer. They're talking about pricing their ebook at $5.99. How do you know if you're pricing yourself out? Okay. There's a couple different ways of figuring this out. One, take a look at the people around you. Now, I know that it's a really shitty argument that if everybody were going to run off the bridge, would you run off the bridge too? I know that's a bad argument. I know it's almost always made terribly. I know. However, a lot of people in self-publishing use that as the primary and, in fact, the sole way of figuring out their price you just see what everybody else is doing you figure your book is as good as theirs you slap a price tag on it so that it's very much like if not exactly like what their price tag is that's not great but you know it's not the end of the world either like you're not you're not wrong for pricing like everybody else you don't always have to go out of your way to price in a hyper unique way because prices one element that's working towards contributing to a sale, it's its one component, the other being the cover, the title, the back blurb, and if anybody quickly skims through the text. But you could price yourself out if you set your price so radically above what everybody else is, and then your other factors don't help contribute, like your back blurb isn't very exciting, your cover's kind of blah, your title's vague as hell. Like, yeah, you could be pricing yourself out, but you can't just look at pricing as an individual thing, as one factor, and say, yes, this is the reason why I'm not getting any sales. It works in concert with other stuff. A higher price point is not an assumption of quality, not in books, It might be a higher point of, uh, a higher indicator of of quality when we look at like meals or vehicles or ideally maybe service. But what we're looking for in books is accessibility, which is why pricing is kept low because we want to get more total number of books out usually and outliers to that like $12.99 uh when everything else is $3.99 or it's, you know, nine, you know, ninety-nine cents or something. You can't necessarily go, well, it has to be special because it's more expensive, because I have spent a lot of time and money on things that are very expensive and been very disappointed by them. And books exhibit a weird psychology. I don't know what else to call it. Everybody wants to know about um Everybody wants to know if they're doing it right. If if their experience, whatever it is, is happening the way it's supposed to happen. As if one size fits all. One size never fits all. It particularly doesn't fit all when it comes to art. That's sort of like asking somebody, hey, I'm moving a paintbrush and you're moving a paintbrush. So are we painting the same thing? And you're not. You're super not. You're drawing, you know, a landscape and I'm spiraling with like a weird abstract shape or something. The point I'm trying to make is that too many people worry about a small thing like a price tag when they forget to look at the overall cumulative big picture stuff. By itself, 599 does not seem high for books. It doesn't seem high at all. I mean, I spent $6 today at the grocery store and didn't blink twice. So why do I, why would I suddenly look at 599 for a book and stop and wonder, Oh my God, what's wrong with the book? A lot of the platforms that people sign to and, you know, join like the flying Dutchman and can sign their souls to they, they dictate pricing. That's that you get, you get a hefty profit share but they get the ability to fuck with your price at any time. And you're just having, you just have to be okay with that because they're the big game in town. I hate that. I think we should all fight back against that, but five ninety nine does not automatically price yourself out just because it has a five in it, but the platform is going to want you to think it does because reasons. Cause it's five ninety nine, You get a bigger of 599 is bigger than 70% of 399 because there's just more and no one wants you to recognize that or, or notice that right away. 599 is not pricing you out. It's just a price. Look at the total factors and then make your decision. But 599 is probably fine unless your thing is real tiny and you're not really justified in your price. Like you've got three pages, and it's a little pamphlet and a blurb that's not worth six dollars.'ve You've got you've to think not in terms of like, not in terms of like the lofty egoic sense of the amount of work I did. completely makes it worth a hundred dollars. Like that's some weird tech bro grind set hustle kind of shit. And we don't want to go down that road because no good comes from that road, but we do want to instead go. Is this thing I think worth this amount of money? And in a fairly objective, because you can't always be purely objective, but in a somewhat as best I can be objective, as best I can be confident way, am I all right with that price? Yes, no. That's how you do it. Good question. Question eight What if I have a lot of content and trigger warnings? Is that bad? I got this question from a a new writer, a very new writer who, who is still working their way through their opening part of their first draft. And I hope they keep writing, but they asked about content and trigger warnings. And yes, you should have them. Um, There's, there's no reason not to, it doesn't make you a bad person with some kind of strange agenda, or it doesn't make you, you know, like weak in some way. It's just a thing you have to be respectful and careful with other people, you know, compassionate, Nothing. But is it bad if you have a lot of them? This suggests that there's somehow a magic number that you're allowed to have, and going over it is somehow a problem. There just so we're clear, there is no magic number. You can have one, two, five, twenty, sixty things. That's fine. You can have as much as much of them as you're comfortable producing to whatever degree you're comfortable with. But there is something to consider outside of just the counting exercise of how many content trigger warnings you have. And the question is this. From a you writing it standpoint, what is it you're trying to say and how are you trying to say it that it has a lot of content and trigger warnings? If this is something deeply personal and cathartic for you. If you're writing a version of your life and you are taking the negative bad things that have happened to you and putting them on a a made-up person in order for you to better process them, the question isn't, hey, Should I have 15 or 16 warnings for this? The question should be, is this the best medium for me to express myself this way? What happens, and uh, I'm, I'm worried that this part of the answer sounds old person yelling at cloud. I don't want it to. What happens, though, is that with a lot of younger writers who are really being creative for the first time and they're really eager to write, but they don't really have that foundation of support to really have them just go make some shit up and go write it. They draw from their own lives and a lot of people who don't otherwise find a voice, find a creative voice to be their voice. So they, they take their, admittedly unhappy existences with admittedly bad things in their past. And they try to work through them therapy style in a creative way, you know, to make peace with it, to work through it, to see it from all sides, to consider it, to heal from it, whatever they say to themselves that they're doing or whatever they're doing doesn't ultimately matter at this moment. And when you are doing that, you've got to ask yourself why, you're doing that. If this is just a thing you're writing for you and you have no intention of publishing it, you have no intention of really letting, you know, the larger, greater public see it. Maybe you'll show it to one or two very close friends or a partner or something, but the the majority of the world will never know you've done this thing. If that's the case, why did you need content and trigger warnings on it? If you are producing a thing for publication where you are directly intending the world at large to be exposed and aware of the thing you are creating, why would you go as wide open, full throated badness in the way that you have? Why be that graphic? Why be that explicit? Why expose that kind of catharsis to others? Now, I understand the the contradiction and maybe the hypocrisy here as a guy who's always telling you to be vulnerable. What's wrong with me now turning around and going, Hey, why are you talking about the trauma that happened to you? Because there's a difference between being vulnerable and trauma dumping, turning around and just standing there saying, here are the 15 bad things that happened to me. They super duper suck. And they do. Absolutely. I'm not saying otherwise. I'm asking you though, what good is it going to do to help that happen? So you, you, you dump all your stuff out on the page. You turn it into a book. You're going to self-publish it because traditional publishing is going to look at all the content and all the trauma and go... No, we can't sell it. So you'll self-publish it. And then what? Will it say what you want to say? Or is this too much of a self-insert? Did you do this in an, in an immature way, trying to do a mature thing? That's what we want to consider. And I know we started off with just a counting exercise for content warnings, but that's the shallow end of this pool. The deeper end of the pool is, where is this thing going? What are you going to do with this story? If you are trying to take the pain of how it was to grow up the way you did or, or the pain and the suffering and the hurt and the harm and the, the fracturing of your life that trauma may have done for you, why have you elected to recount it line for line, word for word, action for action, as opposed to taking the concept of it And expressing the concept. Because the more you personalize it, the harder it is to connect with. Because the more shock value it's going to have. Because if I tell you something specifically bad that happened to me, your response isn't going to be self-reflective. You're not going to look at your own life and go, I get what you're saying. You're going to hear me tell you something bad and go, oh, John, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And you're making it about you there comes a point where you have to transition your art away from making it about you and the act that you're making it look at me i'm so creative and shift it into i am making this because i want us you plus me to connect in a certain way that's a big creative maturity milestone And trigger warnings and content warnings can help us get there because it gives us a a framework with which to understand what we are about to encounter together. But if you are doing this, just to recount to everybody else who might not know how shitty things were for you, you've got to consider why you're choosing this medium. Because maybe it comes down to something simple like, my life is hell and everything is shit and I'm unhappy and writing is my only safe space. Writing is my only refuge. So I'm going to write. And in order to comfort myself from how bad everything is, I will tell myself some imaginative story about how I will publish and that'll give me some hope. And that's a really unfortunate reality for a lot of people. It sucks. I'm sorry if that's your experience and that's what you're going through. I, want things to be better for you. But please consider that at some point this is going to turn not just into a uh, not just into a contest to see who can have the most tragedy, but it's going to turn into a business and think about that business from time to time to keep you from straying too far into something that should be handled in a different medium. Like, at some point, we have to have a serious conversation about, like, hey, maybe this stuff you're talking about isn't great in fiction. Maybe you could go find, like, a therapist. That's a legit conversation to really consider. And I know that's miles and miles away from, hey, John, how do I have a plot twist? But uh, it is something that comes up when it comes to writers looking to explore themselves. And looking to get that exploration on the page. On we go. Next question. Question nine. I want to switch genres, but I'm afraid I will lose my audience. What can I do? Well, we have to accept that when we switch anything, we're going to lose some people. Like, they're not going to cease existing. This isn't like a Thanos snap situation. But some people don't read all the genres let's say. And especially if you're making a big jump to a very, very different genre, like you're a fantasy author who is suddenly going to write, um, really wild, like erotica. And you're going from very like sword and sorcery high questing to like lots of different kink exploration there's going to be some people who are just not interested. No matter, Even though you wrote it, even though they like your writing and other things, they're not going to be interested in this new facet or dimension of your creativity. You're always going to lose some people. If you're letting that loss keep you from making the switch, then you have given a thing too much control because you built this audience in this first genre whatever it might be. You built that audience. It maybe took some time. It might not have been the fastest. It might not have been the easiest. You might have at times felt very discouraged or impatient, but you did build an audience in this genre because otherwise that's why you're afraid to lose them now. Switching genres means you can build a new audience, in a new genre, but it does not mean that you will lose 100% of the old audience. You're going to lose some. I don't know how big some is, but you'll lose some because not everybody reads everything. If your audience is small, like mega super small, let's say four people, I'm making up like small as hell numbers. If you're worried that all four people well, will stop reading what you're writing because you're jumping genres. Even if that genre jump is something from like fantasy to sci-fi or um, romance to Gothic romance or legal thriller to detective story. Like you're, you're moving somewhat within the same space. You're not totally going from high fantasy to kink, like the small jumps there are, your audience possibly won't go. Big jumps, maybe. Small jumps, unlikely. What you can do is kind of hedge your bets here. You can't guarantee that everybody will stay, but you can make them aware that you're going to change. Send an email. Send a newsletter. Hey, everybody, just wanted to let you know. Now, I don't know if you're switching genres never to return or if you're switching genres because you just want to expand. You'd have to make this distinction at this moment rather than later. Hey, everybody, just want to let you know I've got new things coming down the pipeline. This is what it looks like. You can pre-order it here. I'd love to have you check it out. That's all you can do. You can make the offer. And maybe people will get on board, and maybe they won't, and that's their choice. You can't force them. But it's possible that some people will stick with you. And then you just keep growing as you were before. Just because it's a different genre doesn't mean we suddenly do different things. We just do them to different people. Don't assume the whole audience is going to run away. You're not starting from zero. It might feel like that, but you are not completely like regressing to the point where you had nothing. You know how to build an audience because you built one that you're now afraid to lose. You're not going to lose everything. You're going to lose some, and it's going to be scary because you're going to lose, and oh my God, the numbers are getting smaller. But it's not permanent, and it's something that you can do something about. So switch if you want to switch genres. You might be surprised. People might look at this and go, oh, this is way better. There's an equal chance for that. There is an equal chance that someone might go, oh, this new genre is better than your last one. That's just as possible as someone saying, I read the new stuff. I didn't like it or I don't like it before and I haven't read it yet. Like it's a 50-50 shot, not an all or nothing. So give it a chance to be good and different as opposed to being bad and different and then inform people that it's going to happen. That's all you can do. Good luck. Now here's a question. How does this relate to people having multiple pen names is to keep feet in multiple genre at once. I do not have multiple pen names, so I can't say with a hundred percent certainty, but I would th- I would think that people maintain multiple pen names because they do want to have feet in multiple genre. This is the pen name I use for this one, this is the pen name I use for that one, this is the pen name I use for the third one, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so on and so on. That's I think why it happens. Um yeah, i'm I'm making a face. I know that's that's terrible for audio. I'm It has been my experience watching people craft multiple separate pen names for multiple separate genre that once people find out that you have a different pen name and a different genre and you are functionally treating it like a different separate person, like this is me when I do X, this is me when I do y there's more likelihood of overlap because they see that the effort is being made. It's one of the useful things about pen names. Useful is maybe not the best word for it, but one of the advantages to maintaining a pen name is maintaining that sort of free permission slip independence that, you know, under your pen name, that, character of you that facet or dimension of you might get more latitude more permission more encouragement to be slightly different than who you totally are and then it is through that freedom you get to do what you want and then you can repeat that process as many genre as you want if you want but I, I think rather than it being a business decision like oh this is person x doing business as whomever the pen name is I think it has to do with keeping options open. That's my opinion. I, I have no, uh, I have no personal experience with pen names. Nothing substantial, anyway. I think, you know, we all have those moments where we write anonymous bullshit comments on the internet. But um, yeah, that's different than a pen name. Good question. Really good question. Anything else? While I put more water in me. Yeah, no problem. On we go. Question number 10. What are three bad habits in writing communities? Oof, okay, maybe we should sit down. Maybe, Maybe we should like have more than a glass of water. Oh boy, here we go. First and foremost, the worst habit in a writing community are the people who take up space and are waiting for something. Or they're just there. I, I don't understand. Like, I, I, I can get through and understand a lot of different things. But the people who populate a community and neither contribute to it nor detract from it, they just sort of exist in it, I don't understand. Like, you join a Discord, that's a, that's a conscious act. You have to do something to do that. It doesn't just happen spontaneously. you got to use your phone. you got to click a thing. you got to type a thing or whatever. You have to go out of your way to join a Discord community. That's a conscious thing you decided to do. Why would you do that if you were not going to then take more action after that? I've joined. Okay, now I'm going to jump in. Now I'm going to do stuff. Now I'm going to learn stuff. Even if you were just there to take things, like go to the Discord and download all the free stuff in the free folder. That's fine, but that's still a conscious act. I do not understand the people who join and then sit there. That's, that seems weird to me. Like, there's a better way to use your time? And I'm saying this as somebody who is a member of multiple Discords and a member of multiple writing communities and writing spaces where I am less active in some spaces than I am in others, but I'm always available. Now, maybe that's a function of me being me doing what I do, but I'm always around. I'm always able to jump in if I want. I don't, I try not to just be a name in a list or just sit there in a space. I want to I want to do something with my time and my energy while I'm there. So for me, biggest bad habit is just occupying space and contributing nothing. Item number two, one I have personal experience with. Um, In a lot of writing communities, there's this sort of strange, unspoken competition. So somebody comes into a writing community and they're doing whatever they're doing. Other people are doing what they're doing. But they see the new guy, they see the new person, and they, they feel like this new, one's, this new person's horning in on our territory, oh my God. And so they, they constantly have to try and one-up or bring down the other person. It's uh, It's weird and childish, but it's this idea of like, there's a pecking order and new people need to know their place. And it, it can be a really sort of discourteous, disruptive atmosphere. And because it, it comes across in loads of different ways, it's not just like overt, you know, like you're droids, we don't like their kind here, they have to wait outside kind of vibe. But it's also really passive stuff, like somebody who always needs to tell you like their accomplishments. Every time something comes up, somebody asks a question and they jump in, well, when I did X, Y, Z, blah, 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 as if they have to qualify their experience in order for them to be taken seriously, which is really irritating because you could just answer the fucking question. So for me, the second bad habit is this level of strange competition that we're not all in this space together and we're not all working towards the collective good of everyone. It's a pecking order for no reason. Most hierarchies are fundamentally pointless. They don't get you anywhere in the long run. Ultimately, it's about horizontal communication than vertical, because all vertical does is entrench the verticality. The guy in charge tends to stay in charge, whereas horizontal growth lets everybody have a voice, be treated equally and fairly, and be heard and have the same opportunity. So, Uh, a pecking order where there's like, I'm special and I'm more specialer than you. And this is, this is often codified through ranking systems or points or color coding or titles or loads of different stuff like that, that all suggests a a vertical structure that can be really uninviting to people, really disruptive to people, really annoying, really uh, inhibiting. And it, it prevents the community from growing under, um, the guise of providing more structure. It just doesn't it just very little good happens. So, yeah, it's a whole thing. Third habit. Not enough writing communities are writing focused. they They want to do other things. like big other things. I don't mean like sometimes they have, writing, they have, they have writing things like real writing contests and giveaways and all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not talking about like writing adjacent stuff in writing spaces. I'm talking about like, we're going to go do something totally super different that isn't writing. Like today I want to see, I don't know, shitty cat memes or join me for like musical appreciation day what does that have to do with writing a writing community the, the what you do there is in the name of it. Yeah, it's a community, but it's there around writing. It's built around a single function. It's built around a single purpose. The social element, the the community should be in service of the task or goal for which it is oriented as opposed to just sort of existing in a space. Like if you just want a clubhouse and then go Build a clubhouse. Like go go have a social event. That's 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 a totally separate thing. A writing community, I believe, should always foster and develop people writing. It's a creative place to permit people to grow and become more creative and give people an opportunity they would not otherwise get. If they just wanted to fucking socialize on the internet, there's a billion other fucking places to do that. So that third bad habit, the writing in the writing community becomes Tertiary or quaternary, it becomes this like way diminished thing that's, oh, by the way, I guess we should do some writing. We're a writing group. When it totally, absolutely needs to be the other way around. It totally needs to be writing first and foremost. And then I guess, hey, if you want to go hang out after we do the writing, sure. But writing's got to come first. Those are my, now, um, granted, they are grossly influenced by my personal experiences in and out of and being kicked out of and being accepted in loads of different community spaces, um, you are, of course, welcome to disagree for any number of reasons. But those are my three big bad habits. On we go. Question 11. A question that, frankly, I got to have more water before I go through because it's going to be, oof. Okay, here we go. Question 11, build me a seven-day writing plan so I can get back to working on my book, please. Well, at least you said please. Okay, seven days. If I have seven days to get you back into writing, then really I have six days because that seventh day I want you writing. So I have six days to get you back on track. Okay, here we go. Day one, I want you trying to think how I would do this. If this was a client, if this was somebody who came to me with this express thing and said, I want to get back to writing as quickly as possible. What do I need to do? First thing I would have you do, I'd have you make a list, two lists. One, I'd make, I I'd let you write a, you'd write a list of all the things you're afraid of. Failure, rejection, writing a bad chapter, appearing stupid, never getting any sales, having one star ratings. Um, everybody hating your work, all your writing fears, put them in a list. Then two, I would have you write a list of all the reasons why you like writing, not all the reasons you want to like, um, be a writer or sell a lot of copies or what you're going to do with all your money because whatever I want you to think about why you like writing it feels creative. It feels good. It makes you feel in charge. It, it, it's exciting. It's fun. All that stuff. Okay? Then I want you to take both of those lists. That's day one. I want you to take both of those lists and tack them up somewhere in your writing space. Because you're going to look at them constantly. Yes, even the negative one. Because you're going to look at the negative one, and you're going to disprove it. And you're going to look at the positive one, and you're going to prove it. You're going to disprove that negative list. Because you're afraid of all these things that you won't know will happen unless you're doing it. Like, I don't know if I'll be rejected. Well, that means you got to have a thing to get rejected in order to be rejected. Which means you got to get to work. So on the bottom of that list, at day two, the first thing you're going to write at the bottom of your negative list is prove it. You could put it at the top, wherever there's space. I tend to put it at the bottom because it's the thing I see, like clearest next to the monitor and then on the other side on the on the positive list at the bottom or more or less in the same spot where you wrote the prove it for the negative list i want you to write fuck yeah over on the positive list because you're going to look at that every time you feel discouraged man i don't know if i can do this it's really hard you go look at your list i like writing because dot 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 it makes me feel good about myself fuck yeah that's day two well, that's the start of day two. Then for the rest of day two, I want you to write, I don't know, a paragraph at most about what your story is, what your book is, what's it about. If that means you've got to cover plot, great. If that means you got to talk about character, great. You get no more than four sentences, go. That's day two. Day three, okay. So we take the work from day two, that little paragraph plot summary, and we're going to break down all the pieces you have character you have world building and you have plot we're day three pick one of those three and you're gonna just build let's say you pick a character first day three we build character who's your main character what do they want what are their goals what are their skills what are they afraid of what do they fail at what do they believe what is their personal moral code all the building blocks we cover when we talk about characters okay Day four, we pick a different thing off the list. Maybe we do world building. What's the world like? What are the rules of the world? How do we organize the world? What pluses and minuses? What social dynamics do we have? What are the environmental things? What are the opportunities? What are the risks? What are the the punishments? What are the rewards? All that stuff. We build the world. On day five, we handle the third thing we hadn't touched. What's the plot? Where's the conflict? What's the antagonist look like? What are the, what's the overall step-by-step breakdown of the plot? This to this, to this, to this, to this, until the climax, until the resolution. That's day five. Day six, well, day six, we start writing our roadmap for what else needs to be written. If you've, if you've got to go back to writing your book, presumably you've got something written already. I don't want you to restart. I want you to pick up from where you left off. So, maybe part of day six, the last day we're going to work on our list, because day seven is going to be go right. So, day six, we reread a little bit about what we wrote. We catch up on where we left off. And then we spend the rest of day six mapping the next five steps. Just those five steps. So, if we left off at chapter two, we have three, four, five, and six. Three, four, five, six, seven. We'll add five. Three, four, five, six, seven. I'm counting on my fingers. And maybe we want to do more than just say, write chapter three. We want to identify, okay, so we need to have the, the chapter where they uh, skip school for the day, the chapter where they nearly get caught, the chapter where they make it to the beach, the chapter where they um, get into the hotel room and discover it to be real skeevy and skanky. And then uh, chapter seven, they get the first sense that something isn't quite right at this hotel. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven chapters, right? And then from day six, once that's done, we're done. And day seven, we start writing where we left off. When we are done those five things, we stop and we take a minute, an hour, a day, whatever, to map out just the next five. One, two, three, four, five things. And do them and repeat that as needed. That is a productive, proactive way of getting you back on track without too many gimmicks, without too much paralysis, and some straightforward production at the end. That is how I would get you a seven-day writing plan to get you back working on your book. Great question. Good luck. Please keep writing. Okay, on we go to question 12. Question 12, why is my audience growing so slowly? That's the question. That's not me, John, talking to you. Uh, Although my audience is growing slowly, it's growing. And that's sort of the point I do want to make here. Growing is growing. The rate at which it grows is often out of your hands. And it's better that it's growing than it's not. But why is it growing so slowly? Well... There are two factors influencing audience growth. One is algorithmic. A lot of that stuff's out of our hands. It's about getting exposure, getting seen, having people even know we're doing a thing. And a lot of that is something we can't directly control because we have to show up in searches. We have to, you know, manage our SEO. We have to, you know, make sure our platform isn't restricting our marketing in some way or you know, something like some weird algorithm devalues this concept or this hashtag. And every time we use it, even though we think we're helping, it's really making everything worse. I don't know. Part of it is algorithmic and out of our hands. The other part is directly and entirely in your control. And that has to do with the marketing you're doing. How are you getting out the word? Where are you getting it out? In what ways, because you need more than one, are you getting it out? And how frequently do you get it out? Do you only tell people you have a thing like once a week for about two hot minutes? And then you, you pick like a quiet time when everybody's, you know, doing a million other things so that you can just kind of say you did it and get it done and then it gets brushed aside. Do you do it like at the hours where no one's looking so you can at least say you did it, but you know no one's really there? You're sandbagging yourself in that case. You can't always control the algorithm. Anybody who says otherwise is trying to sell you something. But you can control how you market, what you say, when you say it, where you say it, how you say it. And that's all you can do. We have hooks. We can put our hooks in the water. We cannot guarantee that we catch fish, but we can make our hook and bait as appealing as possible for the fish to come along. And then part of that is just patience, waiting for the fish. And it will grow so long as you produce and so long as you put hooks in the water and so long as you make the fish aware that there are things to be had. It will take time. Fast growth sounds exciting. Oh my God. But remember, the faster that growth, the more pressure a lot of people can feel because all of a sudden you've got all these new people and you might feel like you have to live up to some kind of expectation. And a lot of people are not necessarily ready to make that big jump from, I'm just used to talking to like myself to, holy shit, now there's like 10 of you. You better probably want me to do a better job than I'm doing. Oh my God, I don't know if I'm ready to do a better job. Holy shit, everything falls apart. Growth is growth, and speed only matters if we're counting about the algorithm. How fast we grow, it's fine, just as long as we grow just as long as we try, just as long as we continue to produce. And I'm not even talking like pure content horseshit reasons. I mean like we make what we make because we love to make and we make what we make because we have something to say. And if we do a good enough job at producing what we're producing and we are diligent and consistent in telling people that we are producing what we love to produce, then yes, for any number of reasons, because humans are social animals, your audience will show up. But it will take time and it should take time because that way you can work on your gratitude, you can work on your patience, you can put your focus on producing what you want to produce as opposed to producing what you think will make your audience appear. One of the most troubling things a writer ever said to me was in the course of a conversation we were talking about marketing and they said, well, I've tried chasing all the trends and doing all the popular things, and it's just not working. So I want to know what I need to do to make those things work. And my reaction was, well, the reason it's not working is because you're doing the wrong thing. It's not that you're doing it wrongly. It's that it's the wrong thing to do, period. Also, he was doing it wrongly, but that's neither here nor there. The, the point of it is don't... Don't assume that a faster growing audience is better than a slower grown audience. I know a lot of, um, a lot of outlets that focus primarily on content rather than art care about the size of audience growth because AdSense revenue clicks, all that shit. But your audience is growing. Patience is good. Take your time. Just keep making what you're making and keep telling people about it in maybe not necessarily more aggressive ways, but in more approachable ways, and your audience will keep growing. But it's slow because it's slow. That's how audiences are. All right. Let's go to that 13th question. Question 13, a question hotly and eagerly anticipated by people on my Discord. Question 13, I was writing a book. Then I stopped writing a book because another idea was new and exciting. Am I ever going to get published? No. No, you're not. No, you're not. Now, if you want to interpret that as a challenge, sure. Whatever makes you happy. If you want to interpret this as um, a given fact and you're ready to give up, that's up to you too. But if you continue to write until it's no longer exciting and then drop it in favor of something that is exciting, you will never finish a thing. And since we can only publish finished things, the absence of finished things means you will not get published. You have to learn that in the course of making whatever you're making, there are going to be multiple and significant parts where you hate the act of making the thing. That is a totally normal thing. You will get frustrated. You will get irritated. You will get impatient. You will feel like quitting. You will feel like it's too hard. You'll feel like nothing ever good happens. You'll feel like nothing ever changes, like it's always more of the same. And all of those feelings of it not being good enough, all the negative stuff stem from one of a few different areas. One, it's a fear of possible rejection. Two, it's a sense of impatience that it's not it should be done by now. Three, you are worried about the reception. Even if it's not rejection, you might also equally be worried about be it being successful. Four, you are worried about whether or not you can sit down and finish a thing if it ever got hard. And five... You're not sure you know how to do this without it always being new and exciting. Because writing has always been this fun thing for you, but you've never really sat down to pursue it. You've never really let it become a job. You've never really approached it with some kind of discipline and responsibility like that. You've always ever had it be a hobby or a fun thing you do just to have a fun thing to do. But now as we get closer to talking about publishing and we get closer to talking about making it a book and closer to talking about getting your stuff out in the world, all of a sudden this feels responsible, this feels difficult, this feels tough. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And for a lot of people, th- even the thought of that, the shadow of the thought of that freaks them out. So they run away. I wish I had the, the Flintstones or the Scooby-Doo skedaddle noise for this, the the, the Tom drums and all of a sudden the, like the slide whistle out. I should find that for Thursday's workshop. But um yeah. There's this sense, this worry, this fear, this thinking that uh, if it ever turns into a job, I won't know what to do because you're associating the jobness of it with your day job, which might suck, might crush you, might suck the soul out of you, might be boring, might be irritating because that one woman doesn't shut the fuck up and that other guy's just an asshole who wants to micromanage you. Not all jobs are the same, so just because your day job blows goats doesn't mean that the job of writing is going to blow goats. They're not comparable just because they have the word job in it. There are many things in life that just have the word job in it that are not comparable to one another. You get what I'm saying? The, the point here is that if you don't learn how to sit down and do the tough stuff when it gets tough, you will not learn the discipline necessary to finish. Because... It's hard. Making art is hard. It can be fun. It can be a lot of fun. And you can be very good at it. In some sections, you'll be so good you'll feel like you're flying through it. And then other sections you will struggle. And that's not because you're bad or wrong or stupid. It's because this is hard. It's hard. And you gotta let it be hard. And how you approach that difficult thing, how you how you put your mind to it, how you how you how you do it for lack of a better word matters because getting published isn't the only end goal. It's just a milestone on a path because yeah, you're doing all this work to get published, but once you're published, what are you going to do? You've got to market that thing even if we're not doing it traditionally, even if we're talking about just like slapping this book up as a PDF and then selling it off, like you still have to tell people that they're not going to know suddenly and shockingly, oh my God, randomly the universe told me this book's available. You have to do that work. And then after a while, you're going to have to start the whole process over to do the next thing because that's how we grow a career. And sometimes that's not fun. Sometimes... It's hard and not fun, and that's, unfortunately, that's life. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're writing a shitty book. It doesn't mean you will always write poorly or always get rejected or whatever it is you tell yourself that's negative. Sometimes it's just hard. That's why we have things like writing coaches. That's why we have things like accountability. That's why we have communities where you can go and be, you know, helped and assisted and encouraged and all that stuff like, those tools and resources are available to assist you in moving forward. But if you're only ever doing it when it's fun, while also telling yourself that eventually you'll get published, and you only ever produce during periods of funness, your path to publication will be slow, long, twisty, and frequently disappointing. Publishing and writing as a career is a job. And sometimes that means hard work. And sometimes that means discouraging. You know, sort of this, this sense of frustration, this sense of like, I wish it were easier. Because other times it is easy, and that's fine. But discipline matters. And getting over that hump, getting past that inertia of, I love doing this. It's so fun. I love it when there are no stakes, no risk, no danger, and I can just write whatever. Yeah, that's very fun. But in the long term, that's not sustainable. In the long term, you have to start thinking about, okay, this is going to get hard. This is going to have, there are going to be days where I don't want to write. There are going to be days where, you know, I'm closer and closer to getting done and I'm going to find more and more reasons to resist finishing. That's human nature. You have to know these things going in. You have to give a shit and respect yourself and your work enough to know that even when it's bad and it sucks because it just feels like you're doing the same monotonous thing over and over and over again, that there is a goal and a purpose and a reason. Care enough and stop just dropping it for the next new thing and trust yourself to try. Now, let's, Let's be very, very clear. It is possible that you will give it a more serious try. You will approach this with more discipline and you will find out you hate it. That's possible. And that might make you want to quit. That might make you want to withdraw your dream and just write for the sheer fuck of writing. That's fine. Totally fine. You're not a failure. You're just better understanding yourself. But if you only ever do things for the duration of excitement and then stop, you will not reach those concrete milestones, those achievements, those accomplishments, those rewards that are built on you doing a thing that required discipline because you've only been ever working from an undisciplined position. Discipline is okay. It's okay to show up and care and try your best on, even on those days where you don't want to. It's okay and good and right to sit down and make yourself do a tough thing because you're going to feel better for accomplishing something than sitting there wishing it were different. I want you to succeed. I will bend over backward and bleed my guts out to help you succeed. But you got to meet me. You got to meet me halfway. You got to show up with some discipline. So I'm challenging you in the answer to this question. I don't think you're going to be published if you keep dropping everything when it just gets not exciting anymore. I want you to change that. I want you to challenge yourself. I know you can do it. Give it a real try. What a great question. Anything else from anybody? Otherwise, we will get out of here. Anybody? Anything? I saw some number came up on my screen. I don't know if that's an accurate number or not, but hello, people who came in in like the last 10 minutes. Any questions from anybody about anything? All right, let us go to the outro. thank you I really needed this today uh I don't know if you heard the beginning but I was feeling really lost really discouraged really frustrated and over the course of the last 90 minutes I I got I got my head screwed on straight and I got back on track and I'm ever ever so thankful it means the world to me thank you so much for being here thank you for your continued clicks and watching and if by the way if if you're watching this on YouTube please go click and subscribe and press the like button and hit the bell thingy and do all the YouTube bits because that really does help me succeed. Um, if you're catching this on the podcast, uh, did you know you can tip the podcast? Uh, I will include the link, uh, to do so in more pieces of social media. Um, can also subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just search for John Helps You Write Better. Thank you so much for letting me talk about discipline. Thank you for letting me talk about publishing and pricing and thinking and feeling and giving me that moment up front to sort of talk today. Uh, It means a lot. All power to all people. You're doing great. I love you. Thanks for being here. The next time I'm here, in your eyes and in your ears will be let's see here Thursday the 31st that's two days from now uh I'm doing a workshop on world building specifically world building uh, it's gonna be a good one it's gonna take some information we covered uh in last week's workshop and expand it it should be pretty good uh beyond that I will be here for the next writer's chat which will be on September the 5th right after Labor Day so that'll be fun okay okay yeah we're good thank you so much for being here i will talk to you very very soon remember if you ever want help with what you're writing go to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.com, click the button right at the top you get a free appointment take advantage of it if you ever want to talk more one on one patreon.com slash Better is the best way to do that go do good things get out of here i'll talk to you very very soon see you